on episode 85 of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, talking about starting up and scaling up InsureTech with Alex Bond from FinPro. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific tech we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. So, back to you, Alex Bond from FinPro. He's currently founder and CEO at FinPro, where he's been for the last seven years. So, yeah. uh, uh, so, so you dreamed of being a fighter pilot. You grew up outside of London. Uh, yeah. you, you go to college for uh, business management, and uh, then you jump straight into commercial insurance claim. Well, you're, you're looking at the, the rose-tinted glasses LinkedIn version of my career. So there was, a, there was a point in time where I fell out with my parents when I, I used to work in cocktail bars, and I, I used to run bar consultancy. So I would go and design cocktail bar menus, and I would work in events, and um, yeah, I loved it. And I, and I thought this is what I'm going to do for a job. And, and, and my mother, let's be honest, was very disappointed. Uh, yeah. Uh, to, to say the least. Right. Like... Yeah. Um, she did not agree with me that Tom Cruise's talk, you know, cocktail, uh, cocktail was one of the greatest movies cocktail. ever made. And I don't care what anybody says. If you follow the theme of thinking, I'm essentially following um, Tom Cruise's career advice, fight a pilot for Top Gun. Yeah. If that, if that doesn't work, Go into uh, go into cocktail. Um, like when he used to throw have... when he used to throw the bottles and they had the big bar there. And then he ends up like, what a great movie! What a great yeah. movie! It's it's it, it doesn't hold up quite as well, but I still love it. I've got a lot <laughs> of big, I got a big affection for it. Um, are you saying I need but... to watch? Are you saying I need to watch it again to to get a feel for? <laughs> for what you should you should rewatch it. Um, it's still fun. It's still a lot of fun. I mean, I'd still uh, encourage people to watch it, but. Um, but yeah, I, I did a lot of events things, and then and then you know I sort of coming. I did that during college, and then at the end, and then my mum sort of was like, "Right, are you going to go and wear a suit to work, please? Um, we we didn't invest in your university for you to go and work in a bar." So, um, and insurance is the same story like everyone else. I, I I walked into an open day for RSA that were hiring people in claims, and you know they offered me the princely sum of. I don't know. It's the equivalent of about twenty, you know, twenty thousand dollars a year, and I was like, "I'm rich. Let's go." Um, and and so I just stumbled into it, like everyone else. That's my origin story. Yeah, you're like, "Hey, why not?" Sounds like a lot of money right now. It does sound like a lot of money when you're eating grilled cheese sandwiches. And uh, well, let's let's talk about how you wound up. You you went to commercial insurance claims at RSA, then you went to manager insurance team london at hayes then you went to the manager at eames consulting group i mean what what were you learning through all this like what lines of business did you work in what parts of the insurance business did you really get to know before you jumped into what you're doing now hayes is is my first recruitment job so i i, I didn't even make a full year in insurance i um i was doing commercial claims i was working with broking clients who had uh, large uh, fleets i was doing a lot of auto um, and I loved the client interaction. I loved managing the clients, uh, and even when they were being difficult or demanding or hard work, I liked that side of it. Um, and then I had a chat with my boss and I thought I, there was a role called the claims relationship manager. And I said, I, I really want that role. Um, and they said, oh, we can see you doing that in, in about six years time. <laughs> and, and, and that role was paying like 
fifty thousand dollars and i'm like i'm not waiting six years to earn fifty thousand like absolutely no chance um so i I couldn't get out there quick enough so i i had two guys that i knew at university they were doing really well in the recruitment sector so um i started having a, a look for opportunities and then i was contacted by hayes and they had because I had this nine months experience in insurance. They were like, "Well, you're an insurance expert, so you can, <laughs> yeah. so, you can so you can come and work in our insurance recruitment team." And um, and then I yeah I I've stayed in the sector um, from a recruitment perspective in various different guises ever since. So he must know yeah, what he, the- he must know what he's doing. He worked there all of nine months. <laughs> Like I feel, well, I, mean, like, I feel it like nine months into my insurance journey that I was just trying to understand what the hell a policy was. Like, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I had no idea what a policy was. I don't think at that point. I um, well, the first thing I did, so I, I, I went into, I specialized in claims recruitment because I kind of understood it, and um, I knew what everyone was getting paid at RSA because I was on the same wages, and then when. QBE opened up down the road, MS Amlin opened up down the road, and there was a couple of other businesses, one called Highway. There was all these competing businesses, and I found out what they were all paying. So I just would phone my old colleagues and go, did you know you can get 5000 bucks more if you move down the road? Um, and so I think I moved nine people from my old team within the first six months. So um, I wasn't very popular at RSA, um, but they wouldn't take me on as a client. So bad luck for them and um yeah, yeah. i started well, suck it but, up <laughs> yeah 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 exactly pay the money or move along and um but no i loved it i, I i've loved recruitment ever since i've started it I, I love that client interaction um you know and it's very unfiltered yeah and you're providing a need right so companies yeah. can't grow they can't attract talent and if you can be the solution to that then it's a nice it's a nice relationship to have so yeah it's been that way since since I joined Hayes back, I don't even know the date. I think you've got it in front of you. I don't think I could tell you what year I started. Yeah, no, 2007. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. So, yeah, yeah 15 so, years. So, I mean, but, you know, head, let's just talk about headhunting for a second. I'm not sure. a big fan of headhunters, okay? I mean, you, you know, <laughs> you, know you, you, gotta, you, you, you have some that are really good. And, man, you seem like a good guy. You know, you seem yeah. like a good guy. But so, you got, so what's the negative? But you've got a... Uh, you got an industry where you got a lot of colleagues who just intentionally churn accounts. You know, they, hmm. they, 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 they move people around because they generate fees off of movement. There's no, there's no fee generation if you put people there and just keep them there forever. And you do a great job of driving turnout turnover down at your clients. And so hmm. there are markets where headhunters get really, really, really aggressive and just churn the hell out of the labor market in that area. Uh, well, firstly, I, th- I don't believe what you just said is true. So mm-hmm. let's uh, we've got to start there. Um, maybe you and I, move- maybe you haven't seen the IT market in the United States. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say the, the 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 technology market is a market where it's closest to being true. Yeah. But you 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 can't move happy people that are paid the appropriate wage for the market. You you can't do that. Like we we're not magicians. We can't whisper in people's ear and magic them away. Yeah. Um, we don't have that power. But we can present opportunities that pay more, that might have better incentives for them, that might have a better mission for them to be on. Um, and if you as a business can't, unfortunately, if you can't match that, then they are probably likely to move. But people do move for money, but rarely. So it's usually about them kind of feeling more involved, more invested. So 
Um, but look, there are people that play the game badly. There's no getting away from that. Um, I've worked with a few of them. <laughs> I don't work with them anymore. Um, and I think where, and that's where I think the distinction comes. If, you, if you're genuinely an executive search person, you will have off limits with your clients and you won't, you know, yeah. you can't place someone in a business and then with the other hand be raiding them for some talent. It's just not the way the game should be played. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a difference there. The tech market is notoriously ruthless. Uh, and that's that's been my unfortunate, um, you know, uh, experience yeah. level is not with insurance placement. It's been with no. technology. And yeah. you just I've just watched these these tech headhunters just churn and churn and cherry pick from their own accounts and then move the people mm -hmm. they already moved in and recruit them back off. I mean, and, and you watch people bounce, you know, you know, between jobs every two years and it and it creates just yeah. an incredible amount of trauma. But uh, but, you know, the, the reality is I'm also a regent at a public university and I've and, and I was a city councilor in my city and I have very, very, very effectively used executive search in those roles. Um, and could not, by the way, have done my job without the executive search. So there's yeah. always I, I've got a I've got a flip side to every story. That's why I like to ask you where you've seen it. And of course, you've seen it in tech as well. Um, why do you think tech is so prone to this type of executive headhunting behavior? Um, well, firstly, I would draw a distinction. I would say that's kind of like contingent recruitment behavior. Contingent, correct. Or, not executive search. Not retain. Yeah, it's not retained search. That, it's contingent. Yeah, search. yeah, and and. So I think that's important because they are they are different methods of of, of attack, as it were, for for a, rec a recruitment professional. Um, the reason we've seen it is because the wage inflation is so dramatic in tech. Mm -hmm. So I mean, even in the last two years, you're talking about wage inflation of such a, a high level that it's very difficult for you as a business. You've hired some people, they've been with you two years, you've given them fair pay rises, but the market has decided that the new fair increase is 40% above what you're paying. So what do you do? And, and I have massive sympathy because you can't turn around and pay everyone 40% more or because you would have priced your contracting work, Correct. You all, pri all, priced all your you, products. You have to repriced all, all your customers, yeah. Exactly, it's all built in. So, so you've got to just, unfortunately except that some people will get those opportunities externally that are paying 40 percent more and move um and i think that's why you've seen it in tech because it's it's you know the, the tech uh salaries have kind of been reflective of the tech you know opportunities in the kind of public investment markets i mean the, the growth has just been astronomical um i mean we, we we hear stories of the big you know the big tech companies hiring people straight from college and paying three hundred thousand dollars you know, for the best for the best engineering talent, and and you know, what do you do with that? I mean, that would put you at sort of a fairly senior stack in an insurance company, um, and you know, sometimes you'd be better off going to university and learning engineering than learning anything about insurance and, and sticking with it. So, um, I think that's why we've seen it. Um, but then it's interesting for me because in the US, there are more recruitment companies in the whole of London than there are the whole of the US. Like, whoa yeah it is london is the most aggressive recruitment market in the world um is that it, because it, is it, that because of birth rates and you just have like a straight up labor labor shortage i mean we're, we're seeing no no just, in all honesty yeah, we're seeing in western europe we're seeing birth rates so low that you end up with more workers retiring than workers coming into the labor market right so that 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 yeah. naturally compresses 
your available supply of talent? Is it is it is it just because it's a really mature industry there, or is it because you you literally are having labor shortages across multiple industry verticals? It's more of the latter that there's there's it's just a mature industry here. Um, it's a it's it's a much more mature industry. It's been around for a long time, and the problem you know. Uh, <laughs> it is like it is like a it, it's a very low barrier to entry business so you can work in recruitment for a couple of years you probably know the bare basics you can leave you can set up in your bedroom and, and off you go so anyone that gets good at it probably usually looks to set up on their own so you've got this kind of constant evolution of new businesses coming in i mean there's something like 70 percent of all uh, recruitment businesses are less than 10 people so there's, it's lots of small businesses um but then there of course is, is a labor shortage as well i mean uh, i won't get too political but we've not been too um astute in our education <laughs> system from a from a sort of top-down government perspective so we're lagging behind in things like engineering you know we we we've got a bit of a mess of an education system with respect to kind of what's needed in 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 the current work environment so I, I think that's becoming more of an issue and then when we do stupid things like leave the eu and make that harder for everyone um <laughs> you know we, yeah. we're not yeah i can we, we've, i can yeah. guess who's in any <laughs> <laughs> if you're in business and you're not in then you've either made too much money so it's not a problem or you're yeah it's, it's are, unlikely. Are, are, are you're a very lucky person yes <laughs> yeah you're a very lucky person you're a very lucky person well uh, it's a great great conversation so yeah. rob rob galbraith what you got yeah alex so great to have you on and um I, i'm actually happy that the the microphone is uh turned a bit uh because you <laughs> are a host of a podcast alex and i've had the pleasure of being a guest on, on your podcast so um, I've got some hard hitting questions here for you, but uh, very quickly, I wanted to give you the opportunity to just do a quick uh, plug of your podcast, tell people what it's about, where to find it. Oh, it's very kind of you. Yeah. So I run the the Leadership and Insurance podcast. Uh, both of these fine gentlemen have been guests uh, at different times. Um, and uh, we talk about innovation and in insurance. Um, we wanted to call it the Innovation Insurance Podcast, but one already exists. So don't subscribe to that one. Um, but we wanted to <laughs> we wanted to make sure that we were not um, excluding the traditional incumbent insurance industry because innovation happens across the industry. And I think if you talk about if you put innovation in the title, people leap to technology. But we don't just talk about technological innovation. We talk about innovative working practices. We talk about how to do innovation at scale. We talk about entrepreneurship. So anything where there's a, a sort of innovative edge within the insurance space, we have those guests on and it's it's typically C-suite execs from, you know, the, the sort of uh, insure tech market, but we have people that we like to term as futurists and authors like yourself, Rob, and then we have people running kind of technology businesses like James. And, and so we've had a variety of people from the very, very big, we've, had a, we've been lucky enough to get a few unicorns on through to the very small. As long as they're doing something interesting, then we, we always want to have them as a guest on the show. Yeah, that's fantastic. Definitely check it out. One of the my favorite conversations of the the podcast that I've uh, had the pleasure to be a guest on. So thanks for the opportunity, uh, Alex. So let's talk about the state of talent in the insurance industry. And I'm really specifically interested. We've talked a little bit about some of the incumbents, but what sort of talent are insurtech startups looking to get, and how can these startups be effective in attracting the talent? 
Yeah, it's been really interesting. So I, I, I spent, as we were saying, sadly, a long time in the, the recruitment sector in the insurance, so 15 years, and, and the last five have been, the last three truly, but five I've been kind of, you know, touching base with the insure tech industry. And, and, and what they've wanted has changed over time. Um, there's been this evolution and, and, and it follows the kind of evolution of what we saw in the insure tech market. So there was a lot of distribution plays and therefore you needed people that could sell. You needed people who, who knew the insurance industry and could build partnerships. Um, so they were taking a lot of talent there. Um, and then now we're moving into a sort of product-led space where we're seeing a lot of kind of SaaS solutions and, and we're seeing a lot of kind of product-led people joining. Um, but we're also seeing a maturity of the market. So now there is a mature insurtech market. So people are moving from insurtech to insurtech. Um, and I think both sides, insurance and technology businesses, are a little bit in love with their own state of being. So, you know, tech people sometimes think the insurance people don't understand and insurance people think that tech people don't understand. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. And, you know, the best teams are balanced teams and 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 I think you know talking about how can a startup attract talent it's about honesty and transparency I think this is where people get into trouble but this applies to big businesses as well people will forgive you if you're lacking in certain elements like if you're joining a startup you probably don't have the support you need you might not even have all the tech that you need you might not have the kind of numbers of people that you need, time in the day, and you're going to work hard and probably get paid less than you should do. Um, that's fine, as long as we're upfront and honest. So one of the things that we do with, with our business is that we always tell people, you construct a pitch deck for your investors. Why have you not got a pitch deck, which is specifically for your potential candidates to join your business? So, and what that is, is, is it, it's as honest and as raw as you can make it. You know things like what's your runway and what's the where are we going with this where do you see this in five years time you know what are we good at and what are we not so good at where do we have gaps and if you've got that on this document and if, if you can present it ahead of time it doesn't become a problem down the line because people are not taken by surprise so i think i think that more than anything is the most important thing um and, and then just to acknowledge that your job once you start a startup business is to always be recruiting, like con constantly. Um, I place people that I've known for five years when I've never had a, the right role for them. And then five years down the line, I find it. Um, and the same is true of startups. I think you need to go to as many events as you can, as many meetups as you can. You need to kind of network on things like LinkedIn if it's possible to do so. Um, and like all these things, it feels like a lot, but I think recruitment's like lifting weights at the gym. Um, if you just decide right now we've got to hire, or now I've got to get fit for the for the gym and I'm gonna go down there and I'm gonna like make magic happen, it doesn't happen. You know, it's very difficult to do. Um, but if you're connecting to 10, 20 people a day on LinkedIn that are relevant to, to you and your journey, or maybe you will be relevant down the line when that opportunity comes and the right role comes and that person is in your network, then you're making your life a hell of a lot easier. What do you find makes a really great business developer? Because this, this, by the way, would apply to, to uh, the broking business, as you would call it, what we call a broker. Um, you know, the, the same thing. What makes a great salesperson? Yeah, people who are always trying to buy a Rolodex, right? That's, that's what people try and hire. And, and, and I, don't think, I don't think it's relevant, um, you know, it's about tenacity. It's about 
it's about having smart sales skills it, it's knowing what a good sales process looks like it's like knowing what a good methodology looks like and you're know, knowing how hand in hand sales goes with the rest of the business now and the best sales people i know are involved in product conversations they're involved in marketing conversations they're involved in kind of strategic planning conversations because again i think i think the way that we buy has, has changed i think i think what we're looking for is that genuine consultative sales i think consultative sales has been overused as a term um because it's been almost kind of like co-opted to mean selling but not aggressively <laughs> and i don't and i don't think that's true I, I think you can sort of aggressively consultatively sell um but gone are the days where it was about just jumping on the phone because we now know all the information that we need to know is pretty much at our fingertips so getting on a call without a why for your client you know you want to be open-minded but you at least want to have an idea as to why your service and or, or your product is is of value and then you need to be able to follow a process and and you know the the best the best people i meet quite often surprise me that they're incredibly successful in sales so some of it's a bit hidden you know they always come across like really slick uh they always interview well Alex, sales is sales is one of the highest turnover positions at tech companies because they interview so well, they sell yeah. themselves so well, and then they got to come into your organization and often underperform so badly. You know, but, it, but some of that's a two way street because because they have to take on face value what the product can do, and particularly if they're in a sector where they're not as knowledgeable, and then there's this like right, we're selling mm. some I don't know claims software and we're selling it to carriers but we don't know that actually all the carriers are in three-year deals with this like yes. massive tech company that actually dominates the market and you can't sell it and and the most which the is most by the way of, why i don't sell claim software to carriers by the way that's a <laughs> well, it's, it, exactly right you, it, and you know that but but there are people out there trying to build claim software to sell to carriers and they probably don't know that. And then they get the salesperson and go, we can't sell. And it's like, well, no, it's because no one can sell. I mean, I liken it to this. My, my friend of mine used to work in um, pharmaceutical sales. And in the in the UK, obviously, we would have National Health Service. So if you want to sell pharmaceuticals, you have to sell to the National Health Service. So he would have his like clutch of, they have these trusts, which is like they group hospitals together and they'll be in a trust. And he had a his target list of of, of trust to sell that this one drug and the nhs just blanket went for these trusts we're not buying that drug and and sometimes you can be he's a great sales guy but he's like yeah you can't he's in a market where he's got certain clients and none of them will buy it and and i think so i think it's i think you're right of course of course you're right you know sales people are better at selling themselves in interviews than, than most people um interviews are set up for people that like to talk who can communicate well and tell stories that's what interviews are, is a swapping of stories. And so, yeah, more often than not, they underperform against that story. But I do think it's there's 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 plenty of good people um that 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 fall between the cracks because they they buy into the company and actually it's a product that can't be sold. But that's where referencing becomes important. That becomes, you know, if if this person's done that three times in a row, then you kind of got to worry about their judgment anyway. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think that's why you have to take the whole history into account. You're, you're allowed a couple of, 
misfires that you can blame on the company and then it then it's definitely about you yeah no i, I it makes sense you know biz dev um sales I, I will say i've met a ton of founders some are very effective at selling their company but just as many in my experience if maybe you know more than uh, uh, other startups, like the founder actually isn't the most effective salesperson for his or her company. Definitely something that founders, I think, often have a blind spot uh, in terms of how effective they are and, and versus getting, like you said, folks that are really qualified in enterprise sales, things like that. I'm curious, what are just brought more broadly, like what are the biggest lies uh, that founders tell themselves about recruiting? I, I, look, to be a founder, you've got to be really passionate um, and you've got to really believe you're going to be successful. And I, th and I think one of the biggest lies that people tell themselves when they're recruiting is that, that people coming into the business have to care about the business as much as you do. Because it's not possible. They're not a co-founder. They don't have, they don't have the stake that you do. Um, it's not their baby, you know, like, it, 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 so that's, I think that's, and I think most of the problems and the lies actually stem from that 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 one instance um another big one is that you know oh we only hire the best of the best of the best and then they're not using any external recruitment support they're hiring from within their own network um can't possibly be true but and i know we're going to talk about that as a standalone thing so i'm not going to dive into to that too much no go for it but, uh, no i that was going to be my next question go for it yeah well I, well I want to just come back, come back to the sort of business owner thing as well, though, because I think, I think it, it, it's in line with the selling question. Like, so the best best people at sales actually listen more than they sell, um, and I think when you're trying to sell to talent, um, you need to listen. Like, it's mostly about my job is mostly about listening to what people truly want, and and trying to read between, asking, spending enough time with them, asking enough questions that I go, okay, in this next move, this person wants. XYZ and it could be more freedom, it could be more flexibility. It's very rarely about money. It's almost always about some sort of personal mission. And the example I would use is this, right? So let's say you've got a there's a few insure techs coming out now that are tackling climate change and using insurance as a vehicle, you know, whether it's kind of related to kind of carbon capture or or something like that. So the mission is actually tackling climate change. But some of them are using really, really advanced machine learning and analytics. If you're an engineer joining that business, you might your mission personally might be to advance the use of machine learning and artificial intelligence just as a, as a, as a tool. But they're selling you on this climate change agenda, and it just might not resonate with you at all. So um, I think that that is the biggest lie anyone tells themselves is, is that everyone's doing this for the same reason that I am. Um, and we talk lots about missions and people have to be on the mission. And look, I understand that people do need to pull, pull in the same direction, but that direction just needs to be forward. And it doesn't matter if they're doing it for slightly different reasons. Like, you know, they, they, they all want to get home from the space shuttle. It doesn't matter like if their reasons are different to yours, as long as we're going back to earth, you know, that's, that's the kind of like uh, the, the sort of lazy analogy I like to use. I, I could do a whole, Mono, monologue for about an hour on this, I think. Um, but it's particularly insidious at the moment because, you know, everyone's obviously rightly trying to address diversity, equity, inclusion imbalances, in particularly with the insurance industry. Tech's slightly better, but not much. 
um insurance is particularly bad um i think like 70 there's some like the the statistics are staggering which is like essentially there's more women working in insurance than there are men but there's this minuscule percentage of businesses that are led by um, women um the same for um women getting investment you know women trying to start insure techs are getting very little investment and 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 so we're seeing the same challenges um so people are kind of rightly starting new insurtech businesses and then saying like this is key this is important to us this is the driver for us and then they're also saying that we get the best and the best of the best talent but then you talk to those businesses and my job is to talk to these businesses every day it's like where are you getting your talent from oh internal referrals or referrals from our um or referrals from our investors now if we're saying the investor pool is not very diverse and it isn't, it probably looks like us three on this call, which is, you know, a bunch of middle-aged white guys, um, <laughs> right? That's the investor pool. And then if we're saying that that investor pool is favoring investing money in people that look like the three people on this call, and then you're using your networks and their networks to fill your talent pools, it is not possible that either you're getting the best of the best of the best because you don't know everybody, and, and it's definitely not possible that you're doing your best for DE&I, which is this is where it links back into these are the lies we're telling ourselves. Now, I'm not deluded. It's expensive to use people like me. Um, it's It takes a certain period of time. Um, there are, it's a cash flow consideration more than anything else as well, because that money has to be paid, you know, upfront at that time. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm comfortable with that. But, but the delusion i think impacts the fact that people do anything about it and there are practical steps that people can take to do something about it but if they're deluding themselves that going we're getting the best of the best of the best and we're solving our kind of diversity equity inclusion with our selection they're actually not addressing it and they're never going to address it because they're not putting the foundations down to kind of address it in their process in their procedures um and uh yeah just I have to kind of draw the line to get too angry about it, but it, but it really, really drives me up the wall. So you're saying that they got the best, the best of their network. Exactly. Yes. And, and, pro and probably not even that, you know, probably not even that, you know, let's, let's be honest. Like you, you know, you, it's the best people in their network that happen to want to move job at that point in time that also happen to want to kind of do the mission that you're on so uh interesting conversation great thanks for the news rob and alex bond cousin to james bond thank you for being on our show really appreciate you being here no thank you jess i really enjoyed uh talking to you and it's uh, it's nice to be on the other end of uh the the, the podcasting so thank you it very is. much on episode 89 of the InsureTech Geek podcast, talking about AI-powered business process intelligence with Jay Barteau from Zeitworks. Jay, how's it going? Good. How are you guys? Man, I cannot complain. Glad to have you on the show. So you've had a lot of different roles at a lot of different companies. Um, one of them was uh, acquired. You were CTO and co-founder of Voto, which was, was acquired by Hulu. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I've been a longtime Hulu customer, so you, you know. You, but you started in software industry. It's always been in software, technology, technology development, CTO, managing director. Now you've been board member and advisor. 
Um, tell me what the what was the path there? Like, were you just always really interested in writing code, and it didn't matter which industry? You know, it was it wasn't just code, um, and it didn't matter what industry. I got interested in two things in the late '90s: startups and machine learning and AI. Um, and uh, I got introduced to those things through some faculty at University of Washington I was working with um, on one of their startups. Uh, some faculty was uh, doing some spinouts. Um, of their research into the private sector um, and got really interested in pattern recognition and data and all these things I probably would have laughed at myself at uh, 10 years earlier being interested in this kind of stuff. Um, but once I was on that startup path and that machine learning path, I ended up you know, going through a number of different verticals like e-commerce and online advertising, travel, um, medical informatics, um, consumer shot video, all of those things have interesting data and machine learning problems associated with it. So my, my thing is like creating these vertical machine learning products um, that take in some kind of interesting proprietary source of data, pull some signals out of it and, and pass the value on to the customer. Awesome. And uh, let's, let's fast forward then. Is Zeitworks your first foray into insurance technology? Uh, almost. So um, after uh, I sold my last startup to Hulu um, and, and worked at Hulu for a bit, um, I took an interesting job um, that kind of was reflected my background to some degree. I took a job as CTO and managing director at a startup studio. Um, basically, a little, we were a small group of people in Seattle who our job was to come up with new, interesting, venture-backable technology startup ideas. And so we looked quite a bit at the insurance space, you know, looking for new opportunities, new products that were needed, new technology that was needed, and so forth. Um, so that's kind of the first time I started to learn a bit about uh, insurance and insure tech. Um, that was also the place where, um, looking at the RPA space, um, you know, we came up with the idea for Zeitworks. You, you had the opportunity with Zeitworks to take these set of tools that you described uh, to me as upstream of mm -hmm. RPA um, and apply them to any industry. So why did you pick FinTech and InsureTech to be the, the first foray with Zeitworks? Yeah, so, um, you know, the interesting thing, the nice thing about Zeitworks is that our total addressable market is massive, right? I mean, repetitive business processes um, executed by teams of people are found in so many industries, uh, financial services, insurance, healthcare, manufacturing, I mean, you name it. Um, so that's, that's good from a total addressable market space. As a young little startup, we have to focus. We don't want to boil the ocean. Um, and so financial services and insurance were particularly interesting to us. We chose FinTech and InsureTech on the bet that um, because we're a little startup, we got to move pretty quickly. And so when we engage customers, ideally, you know, it's a few months of um, you know, getting in there, um, showing our value proposition and, and getting them onboarded as customers. Whereas a lot of the other industries I mentioned, uh, you know, the sales cycle can be really long um, and long sales cycles kill startups. And so, you know, that's kind of why we've been focused on, um, you know, the, the insure techs and fintechs. Um, you know, in order to hopefully move a little quicker, also be working with folks that maybe might be a little bit uh, more versed in the value of data and how to work with data, um, you know, to, to optimize uh, their businesses and, 
you know, make more analytical decisions about how to run their businesses and make them more efficient. Awesome. So in a, in a short, sweet, simple nutshell, uh, what does ZeitWorks actually do and how is it different than RPA? So what we discovered um, from looking at RPA was before you can implement an RPA bot, you have to know what your process is. Um, you have to understand it. You have to know what the steps are in the process. Um, is the process ready for RPA? Does it need to be re-engineered? Um, does it need to be optimized? Um, and what we found was that although there was a big RPA boom happening at the time we started looking at the space in 2019, when we talked with a, with a lot of customers in the spaces I mentioned, what we heard was, I've heard about RPA, I've heard about it from my colleagues, I've heard about it at the conferences, we're not ready for RPA. We gotta help, we gotta figure out what's happening uh, in our own group of people I'm not sure what my people do. I'm not sure what processes they follow. I'm not sure what steps they follow. I'm not sure who's a good worker and a not so good worker. I'm not sure who needs help, et cetera, et cetera. And so we wanted to, uh, we realized we needed to meet organizations where they are versus where they wanna be um, you know, at some point in the future. And that means you know, shining a light um, on, on uh, their organizations and their processes. Um, and, you know, helping them see what, what's going on so they can fix it and make it better. I'm really uh, interested in this, Jay, um, because I, you know, I've worked with RPA both at uh, a couple of different carriers that I've, I've worked for in the past. And, um, you know, the promise is great. And to your point, we've got tons of uh, workflows, some of which are automated, many of which are not, right, manual processes. And I think the pandemic has shed a light on a lot of the, the manual parts um, for, for insurance companies, you've talked about ZeitWorks being a process fitness tracker. So tell mm -hmm. me a little bit about how that works, where you're able to actually uncover what people do without them having to sit down and, and kind of interview them for hours, about what they need. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. And that, that was really the sort of initial problem we saw when we heard from management consulting firms in particular, who work with RPA vendors that, um, in order as a, as a pre-step to RPA, they would need to sit down with their clients and do this manual process discovery and run these workshops where they would bring in gaggles of fresh college grads and have these kids stand over the shoulders of the workers, um, you know, doing the repetitive business processes and writing everything down manually. Um, and that was, that was time consuming, it was expensive. And it, at the end of that exercise really only revealed a single point in time analysis. You know, processes are always changing, people are always changing. And so we knew we needed uh, a system that could, uh, a sensor, if you will, um, in our case, a software sensor, but conceptually certainly similar to a hardware sensor that you, know, you guys are starting to see in the insurance uh, business, um, you know, people putting sensors in their homes and so forth and trying to uh, notice and predict water damage and other things that can happen. In our case, we wanted to build a software sensor that would sit on the desktop machines um, of the information workers and, and passively monitor all of the interactions that they have with the user interface um, that made up their, their business process. So what applications did they interact with? In what order? How long would they spend in those applications? Uh, what would they do in those applications? Um, and, and by being able to gather that data, um, you know, suddenly you, know, you can start to see things that you may never have thought of before. Um, we've had customers who have said, you know, some of this stuff, um, you're validating my hunches that I've had for years 
We've had uh, those same customers have also said to us, hey, you know, I had no idea this was going on. I didn't know people were doing this or not doing this. And so, you know, one of our one of our mottos is you can't fix what you can't see. Um, and so with data, um, you know, suddenly uh, and some analysis on top of that data, suddenly you can see what's going on in a very similar way to all of us who are, you know, uh, with our Apple Watches and our Fitbits and all this, uh, you know, other sensor software we're starting to wear, suddenly you've got the data. Um, how many steps did I take today? How much weight did I lose? And once once you have real data, I think we all know that you can make a lot better uh, strategic decisions about where you want to go. I got to ask the obvious question. Are you big? It's brother? a great question. Um, and it's a deep question. Um, you know, we, um, you know, are certainly sensitive to this topic of surveillance. And, um, you know, one, one of the things that we think is really important is that if you're going to be measured by something or someone, then you should be able to get value out of that measurement yourself personally. And so, you know, from a go-to-market uh, uh, standpoint, we focused on selling into managers and then their bosses, which are typically CIOs or CROs or so forth. But we've realized that if the whole team can be involved uh, in the value of Zeitworks, uh, both, both getting value out of Zeitworks and contributing to the value of Zeitworks, then the whole system is gonna be better. So we really want uh, our customers to um, be transparent, um, that there's a sensor running, um, but also, give the information workers a login to our system where they can see their own metrics and they can see their own steps um, and use our tools to um, you know, figure out where they're having problems or debug their problems um, and, and be a part of that, that whole ecosystem. Um, so we feel pretty, pretty strongly about that and, and the, the first rev of features were for managers, but now we're starting to focus on uh, features for workers too. You know, I think we only sort of know by instinct and analogy that um, when a worker is armed with with information, um, no matter what kind of worker they are, um, they're more in a position to advocate for themselves. Um, you know, one one thing that we we hear a lot about is, well, I do a really good job, and at promotion time, you know, I have data to back up the fact that. You know, I do a certain amount of work that, you know, yields um, a percentage of the teamwork with that we need to accomplish in this quarter or those kinds of things. Okay. So let's talk about how you said it's upstream yes. from, from RPA. So let's talk about how far upstream, because it would seem to me like the next logical thing would be to automatically build an RPA bot from a process that you recorded, almost like recording an Excel macro. And I'm really sorry if I'm oversimplifying this, but um, it would seem to me like that might mm -hmm. be a, Absolutely. A, a next step, right? And, you know, as we, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we, we started out um, thinking that uh, what was really needed was a way to automate um, what's called oftentimes called task discovery. Um, so that you can understand, well, what are the steps I'm going to need to teach my bot um, uh, in order to do this process? Um, and then, as I mentioned, you know, we realized there was this sort of bigger problem of help me manage my team, help me understand, you know, where we are and how to optimize uh, things prior to RPA. But it's logical to think, okay, well, there'll be a time where Zeitworks helps uh, a team get their house in order and figure out their processes and understand. Uh, how well engineered they are, and whether they're good candidates for RPA. 
And at that point, you know, we have all the data. Um, we can certainly output uh, a process map or a task map, if you will, um, you know, that would be in instructional either to automatically create an RPA bot or um, probably more likely instructions to give an RPA uh, engineer um, to go and implement, um, uh, yeah. you know, a, a bot. You know, yeah. one of the one of the metrics we compute is a complexity score on a process, and not all executions of one particular process um, are the same. So, someone may be processing uh, bank loans, and you know, James, maybe you know your your bank loan application is not so complicated, but Rob's is more complicated for whatever reason. Um, and so it's not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to these processes and being able to, to observe a whole distribution of process executions, say in this case, you know, a, a bank loan um, process, you know, really tells a much greater story of how complicated do these things get? Um, and, you know, given that and where there's complications, um, you know, what is the most appropriate use of RPA technology? That's a good discussion. So uh, I'll I'll finish out with this. What's long term? What's what's yeah, on the horizon? Yeah, you know, a lot lot of things about? on the horizon. Um, you know, one of the things that interestingly enough, um, I think that is probably on the horizon for us is that um, in some sense, all roads do lead back to automation. And so, um, you know, we see some processes where there are parts to it where you need a human. They're looking at a Word doc. Um, they're interpreting some unstructured text as an important step in that process and, and using their, their heads to figure out, okay, what do I do next? Oftentimes, there's other parts of the same process that are highly repetitive. For example, copying and pasting values from you know, a web screen into an Excel spreadsheet. Um, of course, Excel spreadsheets are ubiquitous. Um, they're, the, they're the glue that holds together the pieces oftentimes between all these different processes. Um, and so um, we, we recognize that um, the idea of, I'll call them micro automations, um, pieces of the automation of the process that can be automated, um, you know, for an information worker and pieces of the process that just need to be done by the, by the worker. So the analogy I use a lot for this is uh, autonomous driving. Um, you know, uh, I think we maybe were led to believe that autonomous driving would be, you know, ubiquitous and powerful by now. I can tell you as a Tesla <laughs> owner, it's not. Um, it works great on the highway. Um, uh, but when you get into the city, man, you better have your hands on the wheel. And so I think the same thing is true here. You know, we're, yep. we're obsessed with thinking that AI is going to replace things and take over things. When in fact, I think a much better role for AI and machine learning is in an assistive or augmentative role, um, where it's helping you along and doing those, in this case, very repetitive parts. But in other parts, it's, you know, it's backing off and letting the human do what the human does well. You know, this really mm. goes well with my favorite yeah. book on lean, Two Second Lean. Um, he, he says his primary uh, suggestion in implementing lean is to uh, take a video of your process sure, before absolutely. and after so you can yep. show people how yeah. much improvement there was. Yeah. Do you all actually log video so you can actually see a video of how someone did it before and then show a video of how they do it after? You know, we, we do grab screenshots um, and yeah. we try to minimize how many screenshots we grab. Um, 
it helps us with our machine learning uh, when we train our models to find processes being executed in the wild. Um, but there's also, again, utility for the, for the end user. Um, and I think that's a great example of like, here's where we started. Um, and now, you know, we've analyzed, we've measured, um, and, and we've made changes and we, we're iteratively improving. Um, you know, in a lean style fashion to get better and better. But you got to know where you came from in order to measure your progress. It's been a good show. Uh, Jay Bartow, really enjoyed yeah, you talking too, guys. to you. Really of course, appreciate you can, it. Uh, yeah, you can go to their website. That would be zeitworks.com, I believe. Yeah. And uh, you can go to Z-E-I-T-W-O-R-K-S, zeitworks.com. Thanks, Jay. And thanks, Rob, uh, for being on the show. Thanks, gentlemen. We'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. Take care. This has been the InsureTech Geek podcast uh, powered by JB Knowledge. That's jbknowledge.com. It's all about transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. That's jamesbenham.com with co-host Rob Galbraith. That's endofinsurance.com. Big thanks to Jim Greenlee, our podcast producer, Kara Dalton-Alro, our creative producer. And thank you for joining us today. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next time.